Hello and welcome again to Fat Free Film. I'm Joel Marshall and we have my co-host here, Camila Lopez. Dawson. Camila Lopez Dawson. And uh, we are here, today we're very excited because we're here with Peter Bogdanovich. And I'm sure all of you know who Peter Bogdanovich is. Peter Bogdanovich started out uh, his career as an actor, uh, became a very well-respected writer, and then proceeded to become a very uh, prominent director and has managed to do every kind of thing throughout his career. Is kind of one of the models for what now is more common in terms of being what they call a multi-hyphenate. Welcome. Thank you. I feel like a multi-hyphenate, whatever that means. I don't know. It sounds interesting, though. When it's kind of like, like a renaissance of, I feel It feels like somebody full of arrows. <laughs> now, you, when you Shot began... Shot into you, like St. Sebastian, but go ahead. When you began, you, um, did, did, you said that you always thought that you would be an actor when you were very young, right? When I was growing up, everybody thought I'd be an actor. I was acting all the time. I see. And you know, so, was, is that what you set out to do? Well, I thought I'd be an actor. Uh, I did. St- it's the only thing I studied formally is acting. I studied acting for four years with Stella Adler when I was, from the time I was 16, I lied and said I was 18. From the time I was 16 till I was about 19. Now, we um, as actors and filmmakers, we look back at um, people that studied with a great acting teachers like Stella Adler. Is there anything you can tell us about what it was like um, working with her and what her process was like as an actor? Well, Stella wasn't like anybody today that you can possibly imagine. She was uh, sort of more of a 19th century kind of person. Um, Very flamboyant, very theatrical, very grand, and very insightful and funny and... um, I don't know how to describe her, but she was brilliant and larger than life, you know. And she t- I went through four years with her and studied everything, starting with the basics, you know, which means handling props that don't exist, you know, and s- looking in various directions and seeing things that aren't there. I mean, really, b- from the basics through building character, through script analysis, she was brilliant at script analysis, you know, understanding the style of the writer and informing the text. I mean, she was amazing. I learned everything about acting that I, uh, until I started directing, um, uh, I, I learned everything from her. Do you think that it influenced your writing a great deal? I wouldn't say it influenced the writing so much, it was more the acting and directing. Mm-hmm. I had the privilege of studying with Sandy Meisner for four years, and I recall, I think, that both Stella and Sandy were part of the group theater, is that right? Stella and Sandy were part of the group theater, and Sandy's, uh, and Stella was ad- admired Sandy Meisner. And, and Meisner always spoke of Stella in his class. Yeah, they got along. They got along well. Stella did not like Strasbourg. Neither did Meisner. No, because there was a schism, you see, between the people at the group who believed in the Stanislavski approach, the real Stanislavski approach, and then there were the others who who had a kind of slightly different take on Stanislavski. And the, 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 it boils down to a very simple thing. Stanislavski basically was taught and, and directed under the basis that an actor's 
life was partially, was 50% exterior and 50% interior. Exterior meaning how you walk, the clothes you wear, the accent, what, you, you know, your makeup and so on. You have a limp, all those external things and the interior we know. And the, the big argument that Stella had with Strasbourg was that Strasbourg focused entirely on the interior and disregarded the exterior, which of course leads to uh, introverted acting and makes it almost impossible to play anything with any style mm. <clears throat> or any kind, of, any kind of style. There's some sort of legend about how uh, I think Stella and Sandy, and I don't know if Ilya Kazan was part of the group that went to... Kazan was part of the group to uh, Moscow when Stanislavski was dying, apparently. Am I making this up? And, and heard from his lips that his quote-unquote method was being taken down uh, in, in a wrong direction. No, that's not what happened. What happened was Stella went to Paris and worked with him. Okay. And he was quite old, and she brought back the notes which said that his method was being taught incorrectly, and she tried to correct everybody. And Sandy Meisner and Bobby Lewis all paid attention to what she said, and Lee didn't, is sort of the way it went. Did you begin directing while you were in class with Stella Adler? First thing I ever directed uh, was in a class for Stella. Uh, Took five actors. I don't know how it happened. I, I tell you, as I look back on it, I still can't remember why this happened, but we were sitting around, five actors and I, and I said, why don't I direct you guys in a scene? I was 19, and they said, okay. So we did a scene from a Clifford Odets play called The Big Knife, and uh, we put it on in the class. <clears throat> I didn't say anything. The actors just got up and did it. Now, most scenes in class were either two actors or a monologue. It never had five actors. So they got up, they did it. I was in the back. And Stella said, when it was over, Stella stood up and said, brilliant darlings, but you've been directed. Who directed you? <laughs> and they looked, pointed at me, Peter. And she looked at me and she said, Bravo, darling, brilliant. And that was that. Wow. So I thought, well. <laughs> so the next thing I knew, I got the rights to the play from Odette's somehow. I don't know quite how. And I did the play off-Broadway when I was 20. Now, Odette's was also part of the group. Oh, sure. He was the theater. He was the playwright that made the group successful. Right. Maybe With waiting for Lefty, and I don't know if she did. I, I, I asked Odets when I met him a couple of years later why he had given me the rights to his play. He hadn't given any, anybody off-Broadway rights at all, and he said, took a drop in the ocean. Hmm. To this day, I don't know exactly what he meant, but but it sounds good. Now, at this time, were you when you started interviewing film directors, what sparked you to start doing that? Uh... That started sort of strange accidental. Uh, it was an accidental thing. Um, a magazine called Film Quarterly, which used to be all the t- around all the time. I don't know if it still is. But anyway, they asked me to do an interview. They asked me to interview Sidney Lumet, who had done four movies at that point. He was in his 30s. So I did an interview for It was on assignment for Film Quarterly. I was sort of a... I'd been writing a little bit around New York. Uh, that kind of journal, you know, little magazines and things and program notes and shit. And uh, so I interviewed Sydney, and then 
then I, I don't know. I, then I st eventually got a job writing with Esquire, and I did a lot of pieces for Esquire. And then I got, and, oh, and then I um, also uh, became, I became, I, I cur curated, uh, actually put together three retrospectives for the Museum of Modern Art in New York. We did, we did the first Orson Welles retrospective the first Howard Hawks retrospective and the first Alfred Hitchcock retrospective, one year after another, 61, 62, 63. Mm. And uh, to do the monograph that accompanied the exhibition at the museum, uh, I interviewed Howard Hawks and I interviewed Alfred Hitchcock. So those were Q&As, and that sort of got me into it, and it was a great way to learn. Mm -hmm. In fact, the whole thing was a, was a way of teaching myself about movies. So I'd see movies, I'd ask the directors why they did this or why they did that. It was partially to popularize the work for audiences, uh, you know, younger people particularly who were starting out, and it was also a way to learn myself, so it was sort of a twofold reason. One of the things I notice about your films is that they are eclectic in their style. I feel like, uh, you know, if I watch uh, What's Up Doc and I watch um, The Last Picture Show, I don't get a sense of uh, I don't think if I knew that they were directed by the same person, I would be able to say, oh, this is directed by the same person. They seem like completely different films. Do you think that that... Well, that it's a completely different kind of film. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think the personality is, uh, and the way of shooting is not that different. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, I still do long takes, uh, and uh, the cutting is less uh, noticeable than it is in some people's pictures. It's a classic kind of technique, I think. One thing also is... But, you're, you know, you're dealing with... To I mean, What's Up Doc and Last Picture Show are apples and oranges in terms of the text. Mm -hmm. It's a totally different kind of movie. But I, uh, I can recognize myself in them. In them. Mm -hmm. How would you, how would you uh, recognize yourself? What would you say defines your work as a director? That's hard to say, you know. Uh, maybe, I don't know sense of comedy, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I that, like people. That sense of comedy that uh, occurs in What's Up Doc is something that um, I feel like is a particular style to that era, and it's something that I would like to see more in films today, uh, that kind of a farcical, uh, very physical nature that I don't, I don't really see it very often. I think probably Blake Edwards' films I saw Blake a lot of. Blake did it quite a lot. Blake was good at that. But nowadays, I think there's a, a certain crassness that comes well, they, into the they comedy. Get, they get jokes now with sperm in the hair, not yeah. because somebody falls down. Right. I'm, I'm, you know, it's easy to get a laugh with sperm in the hair. I mean, right. It's an easy laugh. Everybody, it's not almost not a laugh, it's a shock. Right. So most, la most big laughs today are either, either disgusting, you know, juvenile, juvenile kind of potty jokes. Mm -hmm. Or uh, or shock effect, you know. I'm much more keen on situation comedy, where you get into a certain situation and that's what's funny, rather than a, a piece of shtick. Yeah. Camel and I have a project that we want that we're going to do in the near future that has a lot of that kind of shtick in it. What would be your advice for preparing to do something like that that has a lot of physical comedy in it, and something that is oftentimes visual and not necessarily in the script but something that you you the writer knows about when they do it do you storyboard this how do you go about making something like that and knowing you know this is going to this has got to be physically funny 
Well, you have to, you know, have a good idea of what you're doing, and I would look at, I would look at some films uh, before you do it. People who did it well, mm-hmm. like Preston Sturgis or uh, Leo McCary or uh, Buster Keaton, um, you know, or people who did it well. What kind of fi- what Howard films? Hawks, what like films would you baby, recommend? Just like right bringing up baby, you know, yeah. or, or bringing or up or baby Sturgis, Palm Beach Story. Or, there's so many. The Lady Eve, um, Hawks, I Was a Male War Bride, or uh, uh, Bring Up Baby, as I said. Well, there's a lot of physical humor in pictures. We spoke a little bit uh, briefly. I don't storyboard, you, you know, don't. I, I don't. I've done it occasionally when it was a financial reason why we had to be very specific. <clears throat> but I, I, I shoot very tight. But I don't storyboard. I'd sort of in my head. What? Oh, I was going to say, uh, when we met you at, at Henry Jaglum's house, and one of the things that you were talking about, or, or you were discussing amongst yourselves, was Roger Corman and the role that he played in um, independent film and in uh, giving people a chance and an opportunity to develop their craft. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think Roger, the you know the sort of new American cinema that emerged at the end of the '60s and early '70s, you know, couldn't have happened without Roger. I mean, he started Coppola, he started me, he started Scorsese, he started Jack Nicholson, Monty Hellman. I mean, Scorsese. I said, uh, just about everybody sort of went through that process with Roger. He gave you a shot, you know. Roger would throw you in the water and say, "Swim." And if you drown, that's fine. And then if you if you don't drown, he'll see if he'll give you another job. I mean, that's what he did with me. I was I shot, I worked on a film of his called The Wild Angels, which was a huge success for him. And I rewrote eighty percent of it, directed the second unit, and so on and so forth. I did a lot of work on that picture. And because he was happy with it, he gave me the opportunity to make my own film, which was had very stringent requirements, but it turned into a picture called Targets, which was pretty good. But on The Wild Angels, um, I shot this second unit material, and the editor put it together, and Roger called me and said, it doesn't cut. And I said, what do you mean, doesn't cut? And he, he said, it doesn't cut. It doesn't cut well. And I looked at it, and I said, well, it's cut wrong. He said, well, go cut it yourself then. And I said, well, I don't know how to cut. He said, well, somebody will show you. <laughs> and and she says, Dennis, show Peter how to use a moviola and a rewind a splicer and then you know in 15 minutes I was shown how to use a rewind a splicer and a moviola and that was all I needed to go and learn how to cut so I mean that wasn't all I needed but that's all I got (laughs) and I went and he sent the equipment to my house in the valley and I did it by myself I learned to do it and I cut my first two pictures the targets and the last picture show I physically cut them both myself I learned an enormous amount from doing that physically cutting the pictures you learn what not to shoot, what you don't need. makes it makes it possible for you to be much more economical. Are there certain things that you would be able to say off the top of your head that you don't generally need? Oh, no. Uh, the thing I don't need is coverage. That much. I, I shoot what's going to be on the screen. I don't shoot coverage. So I never learned to shoot it. I don't even know how to do it. <clears throat> but um, it saves a lot of time. 
but if I'm going to do a scene with two people and I know that I'm going to cut at a certain point, I'll shoot up to that point and I'll cut at that point and pick it up in another angle. I won't go all the way through it, oh. necessarily. Or if I know I'm going to go to a close-up, I'll probably only shoot the close-up for that one line, and that's all I'll shoot in the close-up. So there isn't a choice later. I don't believe in choices later. I think that's working with a net. I think if you're going to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope, you ought to just as well not have a net, otherwise you're cheating. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm very much against shooting things that we might need. I, I don't believe in that. Why, why, don't, why can't you make that decision? Mm -hmm. uh, what if they're technical issues, though? And well, that's a different issue. Then the close-up didn't come out or something, well, and you don't have that doesn't happen very often. Do you Good tend to work it with happens, but it does that that happens maybe once in a million times. Do you tend to it's work never with the same to me. people? Huh? Do you tend to work with the same crew people that you have? You no, know, I uh, that would be wonderful. I have sometimes used the same people. I've been lucky to have the same people. Laszlo Kovacs, I worked with five or six times. He had his own crew, mm. but no, not not generally. Have you had an opportunity to work with uh, any sort of digital cameras or digital editing? Platforms, yeah, yeah, I've been using digital editing since the early 90s. Do you like it? Oh, it's, it's so so fast. It, it's particularly good for me because I don't have that much to shoot. I didn't shoot that much, so it goes very fast. I mean, on my last film, The Cat's Meow, which we shot, uh, which we shot in 35, cut digitally. I mean, I showed the picture to the studio uh, about two weeks after we wrapped. Two or maybe three weeks, but I did that even when we were cutting on, on the movieola. I was very fast in post. After the first two pictures, I was forever on the first two, but after a picture show, I was swift. Because I'd been cutting myself. So on What's Up Doc, we showed that to the studio uh, three weeks after we wrapped with music. Three weeks. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's unheard of. <laughs> well, it's, it was, that's why they liked me. I was fast and cheap. <laughs> That's what they say and about it turned me out to sometimes. be pretty good too. <laughs> <laughs> Paper Moon, we'd showed him three weeks after we wrapped. Oh my yeah. gosh! Yeah, but that, see, that's not so tough when you sh only shot a certain amount. There's only one way you can put it together, mm. and you sort of work, you cut a little bit as you're sh as you're shooting. So there isn't that much left to do at the end, which is the way I like it. I'm bored with dailies, and I don't know why. I don't, I'm not thrilled with discovering the movie in the editing room. I don't believe in that. I mean, I, if I'm going to dis I want to discover the movie, I want to discover it while I'm making it, while I'm shooting, because that's the creative moment for me, as far as I'm concerned. Other people disagree, but the creative moment is working with the actors on the set, on the location, wherever you are, and finding the scenes together. That's the fun part. Do you do a lot of rehearsal with your actors? I, I used to rehearse more than I do now, but uh, I always asked for a week or two. In the old days, I'd ask for a couple of weeks. Now I ask for um, a week. And a lot of the rehearsal time is spent refining the script and the dialogue and so on, and sort of sketching it in for myself. I once asked Jean Renoir, who was my favorite director, uh, I, I said to him, when you make a film when you start a film, do you know what the film will look like when it's finished? And he said, of course not. If I know what the picture will look like, 
have no reason to make the picture. <laughs> Which is, I think, a wonderful answer. Uh, because the, you, can, you can feel it in a movie when it's sort of fresh and it's discovered while you're making it, you know. It, it has a freshness to it. Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about uh, what you think of Hollywood now and how the business is working and how that affects the independent filmmaker. Well, I think everybody's agreed that the, the, the movies today aren't terribly good, sort of by and large. Of course, there are talented people around making pictures that are good. But there seems to have been a tremendous falling off of quality in America and a big dumbing down of the audience. This is not just the fault of the movies, but, uh, but it, it's just a fact. I think there's a general dumbing down of the culture, period. I think we're in a period of decadence. Uh, you know, I was noticing this in the 70s when everybody was saying this was the great era. I mean, now people say the 70s, the 70s. When we were in the 70s, I remember turning to Orson Welles and saying, God, movies are getting so lousy. And he said, "What?" I said, what's happened? He says, well, what do you want? The Renaissance only lasted 50 years. So... More correctly, the height of the Renaissance only lasted about 50 years. One thing about your films that I find really compelling is your use of visual style and your use of um, space, whether it be uh, space between, you know, a great open space. Like you'll have a shot sometimes where you just pan across and it'll show like Texas or something. And um, I feel like with movies today, a lot of times they're bombarding me with images and they don't give me a chance to breathe. Well, that's because of the MTV thing, where everybody's cut, 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 cut. And uh, this is a kind of fancy editing. Not fancy, but just a lot of cutting. Mm -hmm. Which is why you have that feeling of not, not being able to just savor the moment or get into it. it it's a bit off-putting, all that cutting. Um, I'm I'm against that. Uh, generally speaking, I think it's just. I mean, it's it's very easy to make a movie if you all you're doing is cutting. You know, I once said to I once asked Orson Welles what he thought was the difference between sustaining a scene without cutting, which he did a lot of, for example, in Citizen Kane, where the scene is sustained camera moves or it doesn't and it all plays in one shot or maybe two shots so I said what do you think is the difference between sustaining a scene with the actors or cutting a lot cutting a lot cutting it up and he said well we used to say that was the difference between the that's what distinguished the men from the boys because it is very simple to make a picture if all you're doing is cutting because you have 40 different possibilities, but if you shoot it one way, there's only one possibility. I, I prefer the latter. I also think if you sustain a scene that you, you bring the audience in, they're not, they're not aware of it. I think audiences shouldn't be aware of how you do anything in movies. But, but if you sustain a scene, it has the effect of bringing the audience leaning in because they, there's no interruption. You know, Preminger was, Otto Preminger was famous for not cutting. He'd play a scene throughout, through, in a two-shot, or maybe move a little bit, whatever. 
And I asked him about that once, and he said, every cut is an interruption. Mm. Interruption of whom? The audience and the actors. Actually, Renoir uh, pioneered the use of sustained takes in the, in the 30s, and it was all to protect the actor's performance, because you, you, you sustain a scene with the actors, you don't cut into it, the performance is, has integrity. It, is, it isn't chopped up. Cassavetes does John did that a lot. Yeah, John did that a lot. Who are some film directors that young filmmakers should watch that they might not be aware of now because you know it, they're they're not in the local theaters? Is there some are there some film directors that people absolutely have to watch these to, you know if they want to be great filmmakers? Well, I have a. I have a very strong point of view about that, which is if you if you want to make pictures, you need to to study the foundation of the art, which is the first the, the, the sort of the golden age, which I guess began around the golden age I would I would say is from about nineteen twelve till about nineteen sixty two. That's a convenient fifty year period. I try to make it easy for you. Mm. So there's 50 years. If you, if you focus on those 50 years, virtually everything was done in that period. And um, it's a very rich, very rich period. And if you, you see some of the great silent films that were made in that period, from 1912 to, through 1928, uh, you really see what the whole medium is founded on, which is telling stories visually. You know, people today, you say to somebody, see a silent movie, they think you want them to read Sanskrit. You know, I mean, it's like, Jesus, see a silent movie, why do I have to do that? Well, <clears throat> you know, it's not meant to be medicine, but you see a film like The Crowd, or uh, almost anything Lubitsch did, or, um, or uh, a lot of Griffith, the parts that aren't dated by the Victorian times, um, you, see the, you see the magic of the movies, which was telling stories visually, without words. That, that was a new art form. It wasn't based on theater. It wasn't based on, read, on literature. It wasn't even based on painting. It was new. That was the medium that inflamed the world. That was what Woodrow Wilson said is right, like writing history with lightning. And um, you need to get in touch with that. And it's no coincidence that the first, say, let's just say, the first 30 years of sound pictures uh, were mostly directed by men and women who had grown up or even made silent movies, grown up with silent movies or made silent movies. Because that was the that was the foundation of the medium. So if you're not aware of how to tell a story visually, then you're that's not the you're not you're in the you're in the wrong racket. Because it's easy. I mean, if I want to say something to you, uh, if I want to convey something to you about a character, and I can't say it, uh, she's a little awkward. I, I'll say. But but if you can show that she's a little awkward, it's a lot more impact than saying it. So. Silent films and the good sound films all depended on behavior, business, the way people behave. It wasn't necessarily the line, it was how they said it, and so on. I mean, you have a great love scene in The Big Parade, King Vidor's film, 
from 1925 where you have a French girl and an American uh, doughboy uh, in World War One, and they fall in love and he's trying to teach her how to chew gum. That's the whole scene. It's just, it's just a two-shot. He just gives her chewing gum, she puts it in her mouth, she chews it and swallows it. He says, no, you know. <laughs> and, and the whole thing is the next, he's trying to, to teach her how to, chew, how to chew gum. And that's what the scene's about. But it's really about them falling in love. It's a brilliant, silent scene. How do you feel about the medium of television? Well, television is little movies, you know. But it used to be, it used to have, television has, as on its own, television has an amazing impact, when it, particularly when it's dealing with live things. That was, I, I think live television was very interesting. And uh, television never really quite made, its, made it on its own in terms of a medium. It's either little movies or it's illustrated radio or it's... You know, there are there. The great thing about television is the, is the live stuff, whether it's you know live news or a live show that they used to have. They used Play to have a lot of well, they used to have live shows. But the other thing about television is the idea of a series is very effective because you're basically with the same people every week. So it's a way of you know the television series at its best, like The Sopranos, underlines. The uh, illustrates what Thomas Hardy said uh, when he meant when he said character is plot, or character is plot. <laughs> so you have you have you have television series, the same characters every week, and the plot doesn't matter because you're more interested in the characters. Now you've directed an episode of The Sopranos or maybe more I'm not sure I directed one in the fifth season yeah, and I've like? been in a bunch of them yeah, yeah you're in it you're great on that show yeah, we like I that love doing it now what is it like directing a television show as opposed to directing a film oh it's it's difficult first of all television movie is not any different than directing a movie except that you have to do it faster but um, to do a television, an episode from a television, an ongoing television series is very difficult because the director is not the key figure. The writer and the actors are the key figure. And so the director comes in, he's there for a few days, he's there for a week, and then he prepares and he shoots and he's gone, goodbye. And there's another director. So it doesn't have the same weight. And I found it fun, but, but a little more difficult mm-hmm. to to do your own thing because you can't do your own thing and you got to coming into a going concern that's doing well what are you going to do say I want to do this very differently everybody play it differently no you're going to do it the way they're doing it it's a hit have you ever directed yourself as an actor twice how was that experience I was okay I mean I just would have another actor walk it for me so I could so I could work out the staging and then I would just step into it I didn't find that particularly difficult and what, what do you look forward to doing in the future? Making a few more pictures. Mm-hmm. I like to... I have a few pictures that I'd very much like to make, and I hope I'll make them. Cool. Right, can let's you tell put, us let, what Let's they put are? it this way. I'm going to make them, but, you know, I don't know when. <laughs> can you tell I just us have so many right now, I don't know if I want to go into detail. Okay. I, I'm preparing a couple that we may do in the next few months. One is a th- kind of a trailer trash melodrama called Killer Joe based on a very successful play Mm -hmm. 
and another is a big story, a big triangle love story, a true story, uh, called Star-Crossed, about the star-crossed relationship between David O. Selznick, the producer, Robert Walker, the actor, and Jennifer Jones, the actress. It's a very touching, mm. heartbreaking love story. Those are two. And then I've got this thing I'm doing on on the internet called Clickstar. Yes. The golden age of the movies or something. Clickstar is a very interesting yeah. concept. Yeah, Morgan Freeman came to me with that and asked me if I'd do a channel on older movies and I said you know it'll have to be the golden age those 50 years you know but I don't mean to say I don't mean to imply that there haven't been good movies made some before 1912 and some after 1962 I just mean if you're gonna you know if you're young filmmakers starting out I don't suggest you begin by looking at films made in the 70s 80s or 90s because all those were influenced by films made between 1912 and 1962, so it's like coming into history in the middle. If you're going to tell a story, tell it from the beginning. If you want to, the, the birth of the art is those first 50 years, you know. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm definitely going to take that advice and check out as many films as I can. Um, in that era, I'm sure I'm completely well, look behind. At the good directors in that era. Okay. And can you name them? <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's many. There's D.W. Griffith and von Sternberg and von Stroheim and Lubitsch and King Vidor and Renoir. I mean, there's a lot of guys who are making good pictures in the silent era. And also the talking era, John Ford. I mean, there's so many. Howard Hawks, uh, Orson Welles. A lot of good directors. Leo McCary. I published a couple of books. Yes, can you tell us Who the the Devil Made It? has a lot of 16 directors, all of them pretty good, including Hitchcock and Hawks and Fritz Lang and Otto Preminger. And I did a book on actors called Who the, Who the Hell's In It? That's still in print, which you can get. And it has a lot of references to movies, so if you want to... And you also up. made a film on John Ford. We did a documentary on John Ford back in the late 60s, came out in 71. We've now redone it mm-hmm. and brought it up to date and it's a new version. It's virtually a new work, really, although we retained the interviews we had with John Wayne, uh, Jimmy Stewart, Henry Fonda, and John Ford, and Orson Welles' narration. We kept all that, but we also introduced interviews with Clint Eastwood, Steven Spielberg, Marty Scorsese, Walter Hill, and myself that sort of brings it up to date. Great. So how can we access your show on Clickstar? Uh... It won't be on till November. Okay. It'll be on the internet in November. Uh, I think you push Clickstar. Dot com and then then uh, I follow. I think so. And then okay. the, the Golden Age of Movies with Peter Bogdanovich. I don't know if you have to spell my name or not. Well, we'll that put may a be link. An imp- we'll that put may a be an to impediment it. to it. Yeah, we'll definitely put that on our website and we'll spell your name correctly. Um, I thank you so much sure. yeah, for taking you. the time. This is really, really. We feel very fortunate to spend this time with you. And um, we, we're at that place now where we do this thing called film bites. I think we've gotten a lot of film bites, but it, yeah, I think we're I think we're chock full of film bites. My film bite is just to reiterate: study the classic films. You know, look what's been made. Look at what's been made, and you can learn something right away, so that in the future you can stand on the shoulders of greatness. Um, I have a film bite, and that would be uh, one of the things that I take away from 
this conversation with Mr. Bogdanovich is that everything that you do in this business where you can learn from other people um, is extremely valuable. Just the way Mr. Bogdanovich learned as he was interviewing directors, um, I think that for me, Fat Free Film will serve the same purpose, and uh, I'm really happy to be doing that. Well, you know, when you start out as a painter, which nobody's, not very many people paint anymore, but if one were a painter, in the old, in the, in the old days, uh, when one was starting to be a painter, you'd go to a museum and you'd look at a Mona Lisa or you'd look at a Turner painting or a, um, you know, Goya or whatever, and you'd imitate it. You'd actually, the painter would, the, the student would sit there and he'd try to paint that thing he's watching. And that's a way of learning. I'm not saying you need to imitate or copy, but you can learn an awful lot, and you can find that the you will find in making films. If you've looked at the classics, you'll see that uh, the wheel has been invented. I mean, I see some movies, and I think, have they never seen a movie? I mean, this is this is such <laughs> awkward storytelling. You know. Okay. All right. Great. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much, and thank you for joining thank us. Camila C A M A C A M I L L A. K A M A L A. And if you have any questions for us, uh, email us at joel at fatfreefilm.com. Thank you very much. Sure.